Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this episode urges us all to not obtain abdominal radiographs for suspected constipation. It's also part of an overarching series that includes blog posts, podcast episodes, videos, infographics, and social media posts that aim to disseminate the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is an evidence-based list of five common pediatric conditions seen frequently in emergency care settings where clinicians and families can partner to safely avoid unnecessary tests. My collaborators on this episode include Kelly Lavasseur from Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit, Michigan and Jennifer Toole Friedman from Alberta Children's Hospital in beautiful Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I have also partnered with Don't Forget the Bubbles to produce additional content to disseminate the Choosing Wisely recommendations. Check out their site at don'tforgetthebubbles.com the same week this episode drops. Thanks to Spiros Karajorgos, Andy Tag, and Dennis Wren for your help. Choosing Wisely is an initiative of the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, which seeks to promote conversations between clinicians and patients in choosing care that is supported by evidence, does not duplicate other tests or procedures already received, is free from harm, and truly necessary. At least 80 medical specialty societies have published more than 500 recommendations of overused tests and treatments as a result of the initiative, originally launched in 2012. All right, let me begin by saying that functional constipation and nonspecific generalized abdominal pain are common presenting complaints for children in the emergency department. Overall clinical guidelines recommend against obtaining abdominal x-rays for children with a diagnosis of constipation. The North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition, NASPAGAN, and ESPAGAN, the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, have published joint guidance which advises against the routine use of x-rays. Similarly, in the UK, the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence recommends against the use of x-rays as well. Guidelines recommend that the diagnosis of constipation should be based on the clinical features in the history and examination. The most widely used criteria for diagnosing childhood functional constipation are the Rome 4 criteria. And so what do they include? Well, you need to have at least two or more of the following. Straining during more than one-fourth of defecations, lumpy or hard stools, so bristle stool forms one and two, more than one-fourth of all defecations, a sensation of incomplete evacuation more than one-fourth of the time, a sensation of anal rectal obstruction or blockage more than a quarter of the time, manual maneuvers to facilitate more than one-fourth of defecations, so digital evacuation or support of the pelvic floor, fewer than three solid bowel movements per week, stools that are rarely loose unless using laxatives, and otherwise insufficient criteria for another diagnosis or irritable bowel syndrome. In general, this applies to symptoms over the last three months with onset of these symptoms at least six months prior to the diagnosis. Other highly suggestive symptoms of constipation include ankopresis, also known as fecal incontinence or soiling. This is the repeated passing of stool, usually involuntarily, into clothing. The stool leaks around the large stool burden in a constipated patient. On history, we should always be on the lookout for alarm signs, you know, these red flags that suggest that the diagnosis of functional constipation may not be correct. The most important organic diagnoses to not miss that will cause constipation in children are Hirschsprung disease and CF. 
So if you identify that the child has had delayed passage of meconium, so not in the first 24 or even 48 hours of life, you should suspect Hirschsprung's disease or another anatomical intestinal obstruction, like distal intestinal obstruction syndrome seen in CF. More than 90% of normal newborns pass stools in the first 24 hours, but only 10% of Hirschsprung's disease do. Other signs that should make you wary of constipation include severe abdominal distension growing over time, fever, vomiting, or diarrhea, which generally suggests gastroenteritis, but could also suggest enterocolitis secondary to Hirschsprung's disease. Remember, in general, you don't vomit because you're constipated unless something bad and obstructive is going on. Or rectal bleeding. Now, kids with constipation can have rectal bleeding by passing large, hard stools, but this could also just be anal fissures, food protein-induced proctitis, inflammatory bowel disease, infectious colitis like E. coli or STEC organisms, or even intussusception, where you see the villi slough off in the current jelly stools. Chronic signs that should make you question the diagnosis of garden variety functional constipation include constipation present from birth or early infancy, Ribbon stools, very, very narrow in diameter, but formed. This suggests anal stenosis or an anal rectal malformation. Urinary incontinence or bladder disease. So this could happen in an acquired or congenital neurologic defect, but there is a relationship between bowel and bladder function, which I'll get into in a little bit. Weight loss, poor weight gain or delayed growth, which suggests systemic disorders like hypothyroidism and more and then extra intestinal symptoms, especially neurologic problems, and there's a lot of them. So on physical exam, if a child has severe abdominal distension, guarding and rebound in a firm abdomen, that's peritonitis, that's worrisome. You should consult a surgeon and get imaging in that case. A patient has a pelvic mass, you know, think about the variety of tumors that can occur, including sacral teratomas and more. Lower spine abnormalities such as spinal dysraphism or sacral agenesis obviously impact neurologic function. You might see a lumbosacral dimple, a hair tuft, a lipoma, a deviation in the gluteal cleft. Should be alarmed if these things don't look normal. A big thyroid suggests hypothyroidism. That can cause constipation. Abnormal deep tendon reflexes. These suggest spinal cord abnormalities or hypothyroidism. And let's talk about the digital anal rectal examination. It's not routinely necessary for the evaluation of patients with a typical history and symptoms of functional constipation. It's unpleasant for everyone, and the sensitivity or specificity is low to moderate at best. Now, a DRE is suggested for the following groups of patients. Infants with constipation, because they can't give you a history. Children with symptoms since early infancy. Uh, infants or children with other alarm signs or red flags that suggest organic disease, and children in whom you are suspicious, but they only meet one room for criteria. If you feel that hard mass of stool on digital rectal exam, that can help make the diagnosis as well. Findings suggestive of Hirschsprung disease on the DRE include a tight anal canal with an empty ampulla. You might also encounter an explosive release of gas and or stool after the digital exam. That's called the squirt sign or the blast sign. I'm not making this up, which may relieve the obstruction temporarily. Infants with Hirschsprung's disease also have gross distension of the abdomen and failure to thrive. So the DRE does not alone make the diagnosis. In functional constipation, you'll note a distended rectum that is full of stool. But again, lack of stool on a digital rectal exam does not exclude the possibility of functional constipation. 
so a rectal exam can't make the diagnosis for you. If you do get stool on a rectal exam, it's probably a good idea to do hemocult or guaiac testing on it. This can be particularly important on infants and small children who may have milk protein intolerance or another food protein intolerance causing constipation. Other things to look for on your exam include anal scars, fissures, or trauma, an anterior displaced anus or a perianal fistula, which suggests an anal rectal malformation. The falling signs suggest spinal cord anomalies, an absent anal wink, absent cremasteric reflex, or decreased lower extremity tone. And if a child has extreme fear during the anal inspection, even if it's just external, then they may have been sexually abused. Parents may report that their infants appear to strain during defecation. They may not actually be constipated, especially if the stools are soft and usual frequency. Infant dyskesia is what this phenomenon is known as, and sometimes babies just look mad when they poop. And besides, when's the last time that you tried to have a bowel movement when supine? Psychosocial factors are really important to assess as well in history. So when did the constipation start? Was it during potty training? Did they have painful defecations? Were there diet changes, you know, like lots of cow's milk, changes in family dynamics, a new baby in the family, and fear of pooping at school, which is totally real. We should also be assessing for the risk of lead poisoning in children with developmental delay, hypothyroidism, or neurologic disorders. They need a special workup when it comes to constipation. And I alluded to this before, but constipation is also associated with bladder dysfunction, including overactivity, so the urge to go increased or even decreased voiding frequency, and bladder underactivity, which could lead to an increased risk of a UTI. So this is called bowel bladder dysfunction or dysfunctional elimination syndrome. All right, so let's say that we all do a fantastic job of making a clinical diagnosis while screening for alarm signs and red flag symptoms, and that we are aware of the potentially harmful effects of unnecessary radiation, and we make the diagnosis of functional constipation then why do almost 70% of children who are given a diagnosis of constipation in the ED have an x-ray? Abdominal radiographs are inconsistently interpreted by different providers, and they're not particularly specific for constipation and rarely add to the diagnosis. X-rays also put us at risk for premature closure or exclusion of other presenting causes. For instance, a kid has belly pain. An x-ray shows moderate stool burden and non-obstructive bowel gas pattern. So they must be constipated, right? What if they have soft bowel movements every day that they don't strain to have? Are they constipated? No, not really. Fecal loading seen on an x-ray is subject to daily variation depending on the timing of last food intake and that interpretation of radiological findings is highly subjective. So the utility of an x-ray for diagnosing constipation is limited. Giving a family a named or definitive diagnosis as opposed to saying, well, you just have belly pain, let's see what happens. It's enticing. We presume that that's the family's expectation. But the fear of being incorrect or missing something else, that's worse. A cross-sectional survey of providers in pediatric EDs found that family buy-in was the most common reason for getting an x-ray in the first place in constipation. So it's quite clear that x-rays are not an essential part of the evaluation of constipation and shouldn't be used as a substitute for a thorough history and physical examination. What's some of the evidence? 
Well, there was a systematic review of six studies from Berger et al. in the journal Pediatrics, which saw that the observed sensitivity of x-ray for constipation was about 60%, and the specificity was 43%, with no supporting evidence of a potential diagnostic association between clinical symptoms of constipation and fecal load on x-ray. How about this one? A large retrospective multi-center cohort study from Friedman et al. in 2017 with more than 282,000 children with constipation across 23 emergency departments in the USA and Canada reported that x-rays were performed in 65.7% of cases. Furthermore, the children who had an x-ray performed for constipation had more returned visits to the ED within three days of the initial visit. Now, the x-ray itself didn't cause the repeat visit, of course, but the diagnostic uncertainty and clinician perception that further tests were required in the first visit may have carried forward to the second. X-rays were more commonly used in children who are misdiagnosed, and this suggests that even in children with a relatively large amount of fecal loading on x-ray, more serious causes of abdominal pain should be excluded. And still, there's more. How about the relationship of x-ray and a misdiagnosis? Another large study from Friedman involving 3,685 children with abdominal pain in a single ED in Canada noted that the abdominal x-ray were performed more frequently in misdiagnosed children, 75% versus 46%. Even though children had similar amounts of stool on the x-ray, misdiagnosed children were observed to have more abdominal pain and more tenderness. So overall, the evidence demonstrates that abdominal x-rays cannot be used to rule in constipation, nor can they be used to rule out another diagnosis. So what do we need to do to reduce the reliance on x-rays when history and physical exam alone allows us to diagnose functional constipation? Well, the easy answer is through education and quality improvement work. So one example was detailed in a study from McSweeney et al., And though it was in a GI clinic, they noted that the key drivers were clinician education, clinician practice variability, and family preference. All of these could be impacted through education and provision and tracking of practice habits data. I'd encourage you all to look at your individual and local practice and see if changes need to be made. In summary, functional constipation is generally a clinical diagnosis, especially if we use the ROAM4 criteria and screen for red flags and symptoms. Abdominal x-rays are neither sensitive nor specific to make the diagnosis of constipation. They may lead us down an incorrect diagnostic path and expose children to unnecessary radiation. Hopefully this episode will lead you to more than moderate learning with no obstruction to changing your practice. Thank you for listening to this episode. Look out for additional content supporting the Choosing Wisely Pediatric Emergency Medicine campaign, including four more podcast episodes and posts on PEM blog and Don't Forget the Bubbles. Thank you again to Kelly Lavasseur and Jennifer Tool Friedman. If you've got feedback about this episode, send me an email, leave a comment on the blog, hit me up on Twitter or X at PEM Tweets. I'm on Instagram at Brad Sobolewski. And if you have the time, leave a review on your favorite podcast site. Any feedback is appreciated. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this is Brad Soboleski. And remember, when it comes to avoiding the use of x-rays and the diagnosis of constipation in children, we can all choose wisely. See you next time.